Hi, everybody. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas, uh, Texas, on Friday, August the 25th. <clears throat> and today we're going to be chatting with our friend uh, Richard Baer, <coughs> legal correspondent uh, with the American Thinker. And he's going to be joining us to talk about the GOP debate as well as get some reactions uh, with what happened with President Trump on on Thursday. So let me say hello to Richard. How are you, Richard? Doing fine, Silvio. But nice to be back on. Yes, welcome. It's always great to, to hear from you. I want to begin with a little, maybe uh, a plug to myself and to American Thinker, but I have a post over at the American Thinker today talking about the, I, I guess, 40,000 fans have signed a petition to bring back the name of the Redskins. And I hope that happens because, as I mentioned in my Sonny, Jer Sonny Jergeson and Joe Theismann just don't look good in a commander's jersey. <laughs> I mean, it's just not for them. Right. And then I also made a reference to the Indians, of course, that Rocky mm -hmm. Calavito just doesn't look good in a Guardian's jersey. Right. So, I mean, I, I hope it happens. I don't know how powerful it is. But the fact that 40,000 people are willing to sign that, that's a statement, isn't it, Richard? Yeah. Uh, 18 years ago, I actually wrote an article for American Thinker about the end of Indian names uh, for sports teams around the country. And it emphasized mainly on colleges, though I said that some of the pro teams from the Indians, Chiefs, Redskins, Chicago Blackhawks uh, were potentially under risk if you know, the trend continued. And we can see that it's all gone in one direction since. Uh, I mean, it's, it's nuts at this point. My college was the only college in America that had a had, had the nickname the Lords. I went to Kenyon College. It was named after Lord Kenyon, who was a member of the British House of Lords, who founded the college. So you'd think you'd want to keep a unique name, but I guess the college decided that Lords sounded too lordly, or you're lording over people. So they replaced it with the Owls, which makes us one of about 100 schools right. with that nickname. Um, so basically, as long as there's a tiny group that feels hurt and damaged, humiliated by a, a name, uh, then the schools and or professional teams will cater to them. Um, and my view is, if you're really feeling hurt because of the name of a sports team, there are much deeper problems going on. <laughs> no, I know, I know. There's bigger problems going on in your head. If the Redskins bother you that much. But, you know, there was even talk, Richard, of the Texas Rangers having to drop their name uh, for a slightly different reason because of, I guess, uh, you know, segregation or the, the what happened, whatever it was. I guess at one time the Rangers, you know, like a lot of bad things that happened in the South. Sure. Uh, we're part of it. And uh, but. It didn't get very far. And I know the Dallas Cowboys, I thought they were going to go after them with a name like that, but that didn't fly. Jerry Jones didn't didn't go for that either. But I'm really surprised that the Redskins did it because obviously that's a name that some people, I guess some people thought was offensive, but they have such a rich history in the NFL. I mean, they were, if not one of the original franchises, certainly one of the early ones. And I, mean, I know... Yeah, go ahead. yeah I, I think that most of the objections never came from members of the group that was supposedly humiliated and damaged by these names. They came from, you know, the woke mob who turned their, their anger and hatred 
on whatever symbols they can find in American history that proves their point that this is a terrible country and always treated minorities uh, badly. Uh, in general, there was a, for a while a distinction where schools or teams that had Indian names that in a sense honored a particular tribe like the Seminoles and Florida State University, that was okay. But if a name potentially could be viewed negatively, you know, redskins as a color type thing, warlike, whatever, uh, that was more at risk. Now it seems to be pretty much everything right. has to go. So. Right. But like you say, you know, uh, like you said a minute ago, if if the name of a sports team really bothers you that much, I think there's something wrong with you as mm -hmm. a person. I mean, you need to you need to maybe uh, I don't know, maybe visit a psychiatrist or something <laughs> for the weekend and and chat a little bit about other problems that may be driving you. Well, a couple of big stories I want to get your response to. The first one, of course, is President Trump in, I guess, is wherever he went, Georgia, for this mm -hmm. arraignment, and then the debate. So let's talk about President Trump. I, whether, whether you love or hate Trump, and I'm open to a different person in 2024, I've said that before. If Trump is a nominee, I'll vote for him. But I'm open to to another person, and uh, you know I'm not. I haven't really decided yet which way I'm going to go. But I I know that what I'm seeing is wrong. The idea that you are targeting this man and humiliating him, or trying to humiliate him, uh, I just think that's bad for the country, Richard. Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, it'd be hard not to conclude that the convergence of all these cases within a couple of month period didn't happen accidentally. Uh, Trump's been out of office since January 20th of 2021. So you're 31 months past that period of time. And these cases from the New York case about Stormy Daniels, which was basically an accounting issue, which they've turned into something like 20 or 30 counts, uh, to the two cases of Jack Smith, and now this Georgia case, uh, why were these things not pursued in 2021 or 2022? Why did they all start up really in the last few months? And the reason's obvious. We're getting into election season. They're looking to gum up the works, put the Republicans in an impossible position where they have a clear front runner who is still the choice of probably half the people who vote in the Republican primaries. Uh, and they'll put him in a position where he's under legal challenge at the same time he's trying to compete for votes. And if the Democrats are right that it increases the sympathy vote for him among Republicans, it makes him a more likely nominee, but a damaged nominee for a general election. So this is not a legal strategy that's playing out here. It's a strategy to win an election. And uh, I am sure there are things Trump has done wrong that he may regret or that people in his team regret. Um, it looks like the most serious case he has is the document case. Um, but the other challenge is, I mean, why is Georgia a problem for Trump, but not Stacey Abrams, you know, who challenged an election where the decision, the decisive vote was five times as great as the margin Trump lost by. And she continued to argue that there was racism, that there were all kinds of terrible things that happened during the vote, despite black turnout in Georgia being a higher percentage than mm -hmm. white turnout in that election. Facts don't matter. 
It's right. perception and what side you're on. Right. So, I, I mean, I think this has put this has put Trump in a difficult position. It's put the Republicans in a difficult position. Uh, I mean, a significant amount of the money Trump raises now has to go to pay for for legal services. Uh, these are not cheap. Defending four cases in three different jurisdictions. Um, so, this is uh, kind of a heavy load, and it's deliberate. So, I, right. I think it, I agree with you. It's wrong. It takes a country which is already divided and sort of just pushes it even further apart. Right. I yeah. I don't. I I, I don't see how anybody wins out of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a. You know, my father had a had a phrase when when there was ever a conflict that would never end. My father would say in Spanish, sort of loosely translated to a holy war, mm-hmm. a guerra santa, you know, holy war, meaning that it would never end. I mean, mm-hmm. like it would be going on for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. And and this is the kind of thing that I see here. I just don't see this thing ending mm-hmm. in any way that is pretty for either side and certainly for the country. I I was telling a friend that I what I see in the country right now is is almost like a marriage where the the, the two partners or the, two, the spouses uh, hate each other so much that you know they're basically willing to destroy everything just because mm-hmm. it's and it it becomes an insane situation and and my my conclusion uh, Richard is that I don't believe the country hates Trump as much as some of these Democrats do. Mm-hmm. I was uh, I was recently in, on one of the Spanish TV stations, and I this thing came up, and I made the point that I, I said uh, in Spanish, loosely translated to mom and dad watching us this morning, would love to have the price of gasoline and the price of food that they had under Trump, mm-hmm. uh, because obviously they were at least in, in those two things much better off. So I don't think the country hates Trump. I'm not just mm-hmm. saying they love him. I mean, mm-hmm. like Reagan or something. But I don't think they hate him as much as the Democrats are calculating. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes calculations can turn out to be wrong, yeah. you know, and, and actually end up hurting the Democrats more, Richard. Yeah. I mean, right now, I mean, my own personal opinion is that uh, Trump's likely to be nominated. And if he is the nominee, I think it's likely he would lose. Uh, and I think that's because... It's, it's difficult to think of people who voted, who didn't vote for him either of the first two times, who would vote for him the third time he ran, given the circumstances that now exist, given his legal situation. And I think there are people who wouldn't vote for him in part just because they don't want a president to have to deal with those issues. Um, and the fact that there's only one candidate that the Democrats will let Biden run against, which is Trump. Because if Trump looked like he's going to be replaced, I think Biden would be calling in permanently sick within about uh, 24 hours. So <laughs> I know it's unbelievable, but for the good of the country, I wish it would stop because I don't see I don't see anybody winning this thing. Right. Well, you mentioned run, Trump running in 2024. There's a debate, obviously, that happened in Milwaukee, not too far from you, and I. You know, I actually thought everybody did fairly well. Mm-hmm. Now, there were a couple of candidates who are probably not going to be around much longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hutchinson or whatever his name is. From Hayes Hutchinson. Hayes, yeah. yeah. He's a good man, but I mm-hmm. don't think he'll, he has enough fuel to survive. Right. And the governor from North Dakota, who probably won't be able, he's a very interesting candidate, but he's probably right. not going to survive too long. Right. Uh, 
so that's kind of how I see it. But I thought everybody handled themselves rather well. Uh, obviously, the the absence of Trump was a factor that cannot be discounted. But once they got over that and they realized that they had issues to discuss, I was actually pretty impressed all around, uh, Richard. Yeah, yeah. I think the um, uh, you had different kind of candidates with different agendas, uh, and I think uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who got a lot of attention during the debate. And in part because he insulted some of the other debaters, which reminded voters, I think, on the Republican side of someone who previously did that, who was not at the debate. So to the extent that um, that Ramaswamy is sort of selling himself as a possible number two to Trump or alternatively as a replacement that Trump could endorse. Well, you got a guy who insults his opponents. You have a guy who says he would pardon Trump if he were elected president. And those are some pretty strong credentials right now if you're, if you're looking to keep Trump sort of on your side. Um, but nonetheless, you know, for somebody who's new, who's got a new name, never been in politics, being the center of the action sort of works for you. And the guy clearly is very smart. Uh, I mean, he's very articulate. He's quick. Uh, he's, he's got, a, in many areas, a very reasonable agenda. Where he runs into some trouble, I think, is on foreign policy. I mean, there's a divide within the Republican Party on Ukraine. There's not much of a divide on Israel. And he looked like he was on the wrong side of that one. Um, and so, I, you know, I th- and, and some of the comments he made in, I guess, to an Atlantic magazine interview were not on the debate about 9-11. They were either used against him and it wasn't exactly what he said. Imagine that from a liberal magazine. <laughs> in Washington or New York. But anyway, he is now in the center sort of of the discussion, which is exactly where I think he wanted to be. Of the others, I think the two that did the best were DeSantis and Haley. Um, I think DeSantis played it safe because he's in the number two position. And with Vivek giving grief to so many others, they didn't give grief to DeSantis, which otherwise would have been a natural target. And Haley, I think, you know, stands out because she's a woman, but also made a real strong case on foreign policy. The other one who who emerged in a different way than I've seen him before was Pence, who was more aggressive in combating essentially views he didn't agree with or he thinks are not Republican or conservative. Um, Tim Scott, I thought, was sort of very low key. And Chris Christie, I think, is running just to get one more sets of television audiences, but he's not going anywhere in the Republican Party. Although I will give it to Chris Christie. I thought, the, for me, the most laughable moment of the night was when he gets the UFO question and (laughs) he looks at at the the lady Martha and Brett Baer and says, I'm getting the UFO question? Like, come on, (laughs) why are you doing this to me? I and he also had a good was, line on the chat GPT when he said yes, yes. So that I mean, he's, very... he's funny and smart, but the problem is the Republican Party has become more conservative just as the Democratic Party has become more to the left. Right. And Christie is one of those who could win in a blue state because he was closer to the sort of center line. And that's not what the Republican Party wants this time around, I don't think. Yeah. Well, I, I just thought that was, the for me, the funniest moment of the night. And uh, <laughs> And just having Christie on that stage, uh, what's what's really funny is that back in 2016 or 2015, 
when we were looking at, at an open seat and candidates, I remember uh, my friend Barry Castleman, the Prairie editor, uh, he sent me several notes about Christy. And I actually thought Christy was a very strong candidate in 2016 because, like you say, he ran a, a blue state. But unfortunately, he's too much at odds with, with Trump right now, I guess, to, to get uh, to first base. But I thought what, what was interesting is if you're looking at a let's assume that that Trump is the nominee and then these guys are sort of, you know, auditioning for the VP. Um, I feel that if, if, if Trump would probably pick Tim Scott, I think if, if, if uh, from that group, but I wouldn't be surprised at all, Richard. And I know that I may be the only person who feels this way, but I wouldn't be surprised if he were to pick DeSantis for vice president, you know, stranger things have happened. I'm sure, you know, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Ronald Reagan, George Bush. I'm not even sure Bill Clinton and Al Gore was that predictable. And so even Joe Lieberman with Al Gore, I don't remember that being predictable. So a lot of times when these uh, candidates get down to the moment where they have to make a decision like that, they get maybe more rational and look at the electoral factor. And I, you know, if you're Donald Trump, you could really bring the party together, nominating a fellow like DeSantis or, well, of course, Tim Scott, or the one candidate who was missing, and I wish he had been there, and that's uh, Glenn Youngkin of Virginia. Richard. Yeah, I, I, I like Youngkin. I, one, there's one issue with DeSantis, which is that both Trump and DeSantis are now legal residents of Florida. And under the Constitution, you can't, as an elector, vote for both the president and the vice president from the same state. Uh, now, Trump also has a domicile in New Jersey, uh, where he spends a fair amount of time. And you probably remember, again, because you're from Texas, but the Bush-Cheney ticket had the same issue. And Cheney became a Wyoming resident, you know, to make sure he didn't look like a yeah, Texas because Cheney guy. was living in Houston, Texas when, <laughs> right. when, at the time, right? Yeah. Right, right. Well, so the, I think that Trump could always move to Texas, uh, at least legally, uh, yeah. set up residence here and still He'd keep prefer a, a no-tax state. <laughs> yeah, I so. think so. I would think that with his money, he probably would. But now, who who do you think would move out, DeSantis? Because DeSantis is still the governor. Yeah, so I, he would I have, have to resign as governor, right? Yeah, I, I don't see that happening. And I think uh, again, a big part of his messaging has to do with his success as governor. So to look like you're just tossing that away, before, you know, a year or a year and a half after getting reelected, just so you can get on a ticket in the number two spot, wouldn't look very good because you've if the ticket went down to defeat, you're no longer governor of Florida, you're not even a resident of Florida. Right. Yeah, you're done, basically. You're done. I mean, you're done politically if it goes down. So, right. no, I agree. I, I, I think Trump, in that scenario, Trump would be the likely to go. But there's another factor, too, and it, it may come up on the Democrat side, and that is the question of age. Now, Trump would be, I believe, 78 if he were to win the presidency in 2024. Now, right. he does not obviously physically when you look at biden and trump there's a huge difference there and trump has not i mean trump is very alert and right. and on top of the game but he is 78 and when you you know we haven't had i mean we just don't have presidents of that age no uh, i mean people forget that ronald reagan turned 70 when he became president right. he turned 78 when he left the presidency right. and that was considered you know very old 
right. back then. So to me, the vice president, whoever the Republicans, if Trump is the nominee, whoever they put as vice president, they have to look at someone who could become president, not just for normal reasons, sure. but because of age. Life expectancy. Sure. No, ab- absolutely. I mean, I, I think the problem is clearly much larger on the Democratic side because you not only have a candidate who's four years older, uh, his mental functioning is so clearly not working at this point. Uh, it's, a, it's a national and international embarrassment to some extent to watch him. The easiest thing a president can do is show his concern and and how terrible he feels about a tragedy that hits people. And this guy's talking about his Corvette and his car, you know, for a little kitchen fire with 400 people missing and not found yet, most of them probably children. So, I mean, the guy is, even when they prepare something for him, he can barely read it at this point. Mm -hmm. But the Democrats have two problems. One is him. The second is Kamala Harris is Mm -hmm. less popular than he is, even though she, her brain's still functioning. But whatever ratings or approval score she had at some point, it's much lower now. You look at head-to-head polls for the White House, DeSantis against Harris or Trump against Harris versus either one of them against Biden. They do much better against Harris than they do against Biden. They're, they're even races with Biden. Against Harris, they win by several points, which shows there's a drop-off of people who just don't like her. I mean, they may understand that she was picked for an identity politics reason, and they don't like that to begin with. That's not a popular way to, to get positions and power in America these days among a majority of the population. So Democrats got a real issue. If, if Trump is not the nominee, the Democrats have to find a way to ease Biden out and appease Kamala. I don't know what they can promise her, another black woman on the Supreme Court the next time they win. You know, we can have a, two different courts, black women's court and all others. But the um, she is not going to would be not a desirable replacement for Biden. And there are Democrats who look more normal. I mean, Gavin Newsom doesn't share my politics, but he's a young guy. He's you know good looking guy. He -hmm. speaks well on the Hannity show. He did a nice job, I thought. Uh, And I think he would be big trouble for Trump if he were the Democratic nominee. Uh, But against another Republican. It's an even question. I don't know how that would split out. I continue to say, and, and th- not that I'm, I'm endorsing DeSantis, but I think DeSantis uh, does have a chance, I think, of getting more than 50% of the popular vote. Could. And, I, and maybe 51, 52%, and, and making it obviously a lot easier on, the, on the electoral. Yeah, well, that, that's the other part. So that's why I, I, I feel that way. Now, what is the the chance you think of Glenn Youngkin ending up, or even a hair? I mean, even a a, a DeSantis Youngkin ticket, for example. Uh, and the reason I keep bringing up uh, Youngkin is not because I'm endorsing him, but because I see him as the face of one issue that I keep education. seeing in the new. Yeah, education. Yeah. I mean, I just you know yeah. no, he he was a tremendously focused candidate. Yes, and that's what it takes to beat Terry McAuliffe, who'd been a former governor. Right. You know, in Virginia, you can only serve one consecutive term. So he had to leave office, and then he was running back. Virginia was a 10-point state, you know, for Biden in 2020. So for the Republicans to win an off-year election with Yunkin against the former incumbent governor was no small achievement. 
I mean, Virginia had moved from red to purple to blue, and Youngkin has sort of nudged it back towards the center. He's a you know very successful businessman, very focused, capable guy. Uh, I I agree with you. I think he would be a, a good Republican candidate, but I think he's not personality wise the type who would take a number two. You know, he'd been yeah. a financial sort of tycoon. And it's difficult to see him being the number two to a guy who's eight or 10 years younger, like DeSantis, also a governor. So um, if he enters, it's because I think DeSantis has faded right. and Trump looks like he's in trouble. And if that's the case, maybe you'd get some consolidation of support for him. Right. Well, I like I mean, I like the Youngkin. I, I hope he does come in. He he is, like I mentioned, that the, the face of, of the education movement. Uh, like, you know, there's a huge story today in, in the news how in the state of Maryland, a judge has decided that parents, you know, cannot opt out right. of, a, of an LGBT class, which is amazing to me that mm-hmm. a judge would even come to that conclusion. And the parents are outraged. And something else in Maryland, as I read in the story, many of the parents who are outraged are Muslim parents, immigrant parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Here's here's Yunkin. That's his issue. He's right. been talking about this. So that's why, you know, that's why I believe that he would make a, a contribution. One long shot, and and I'm gonna hold on to your chair before you hear this name. But one long shot is our Greg Abbott here in Texas. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. he wouldn't be a vice president, uh, because you don't need Texas, so he wouldn't right. be a vice president. But I think that if things were to get confusing at some point next spring and all of a sudden there's, you know, people are looking for a compromise candidate, you know, Abbott is the face of the border. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has been, I think, a pretty decent governor. Uh, Obviously, Texas with the prosperity and the economic uh, growth, uh, he speaks well. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. I wouldn't discount uh, yeah, no, Abbott. I, I, uh, yeah. I think both Abbott and Governor Kemp in Georgia are potential dark horses. Um, Kemp's advantage in Georgia is that Georgia is very much a swing state now. And Kemp ran and won by 8% against Stacey Abrams the second time when Herschel Walker was losing by 2 to 3% in the runoff. So Kemp is clearly the strongest Republican candidate running in Georgia. Uh, and that that's a big deal if you could add 16 electoral votes right. in Georgia, just like Yunkin t- takes a state like Virginia, which has been considered safe Democratic and takes 13 electoral votes and puts them in play. So th- that is a big issue, I think, is both of them have a little bit of an advantage because of the states they, they come from. But, uh, you know, Abbott is the face of an issue, just like Yunkin's the face of an issue. Mm-hmm. And it's an issue that's playing towards Republicans. The border historically, you know, has been an issue sometimes works for Republicans, sometimes for Democrats. Education historically has always worked for the Democrats. It was their issue. And now because they push so hard and they've tried to turn schools into colleges in terms of indoctrination factories starting in you know, pre-K, uh, that's simply not popular with a large number of Americans, including the so-called marginalized groups, Hispanics, Asians, Muslims, they are not thrilled with these initiatives. No. You know, to have, not, you know, drag queen story hour right. for five-year-olds. So. No, I mean, in fact, the, that, the, the article that I mentioned uh, was on the Fox News website. 
And if you look at the photos that they have, they're all, you know, migrants or immigrants, mm -hmm. uh, Muslims and other groups who are not happy. I think the Democrats may have under, underestimated how conservative right. some of those groups are when it comes to these family issues. Right. Uh, you know, I always thought it was interesting that when Beto O'Rourke would go to South Texas looking for votes, he would never talk about abortion. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like it was not an issue that he would bring up because down in South Texas, uh, Hispanic women are just not, you know, that's not their their issue. Um, one quick question about Texas, and we'll talk more about this uh, in the future. Senator Ted Cruz is running. For uh, you may or may not be familiar with the two men who are seeking the Democrat primary. One of them is a congressman, Congressman Ulrich. Uh, who's a very telegenic guy. He was a former football player. Football player. Yeah, the other one is a state senator, Gutierrez. Uh, he represents the district of uh, where Uvaldi, the, the school is, in, mm -hmm. in South Texas. Now, <clears throat> neither uh, neither one of these two men is, is let's say, that well-known, even here mm -hmm. in Texas. Uh, All Red is in the Dallas area, but he's not that well-known. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at the map of Texas and, you know, where there was... Governor uh, Abbott or even uh, Cornyn, Senator Cornyn in 2020, there's something that happens in Texas, and you, you follow these numbers well, and that is there's 254 counties mm -hmm. in Texas. And for some <coughs> reason, the Democrats cannot compete in 200 of them. Mm -hmm. You know, when they get out of San Antonio, Dallas, Houston, Austin. El Paso, oh, well, yeah, Austin, Austin, I keep saying we should trade. Austin for San Diego, <laughs> that we should do a trade, but and a player it, to be named later, and a voter yeah, to be named later, <laughs> and and many players to be named later, because I mean Austin is so crazy. But mm. but anyway, so I still think I know you sent me an article recently, uh, and you know I guess anybody can lose an election, but I still see Cruz as the favorite. I, I don't unless he really blows it. I mean, and and I guess that can always happen too, Richard. He, he's a smart, you know, he's a mega smart guy. Uh, and I know, I think he, after the, the race against O'Rourke, has prepared for this one better than he may have against O'Rourke, thinking that, you know, it's Texas, he'll win easily. And that was a scare. He won by 2.6%. Uh, so I suspect that he's in better shape preparation-wise than he was last time. And, you know, O'Rourke, was sort of the poster boy, the love child of everybody on the left from The View to Oprah Winfrey to, you know, he would take down Ted Cruz, the monster. And uh, so I, I, I think you're probably right that Cruz is favored. And the 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 sort of an analyst services I look at, like the Cook Report and Nate Silver and the others, all rate him as a favorite, not an, a lock, but a favorite. And I think that's, that's probably accurate. If, if unless you had some major change between now and then, he's probably good for a win, maybe a, a bit with a slightly bigger percentage than last time. Yeah, well, 53, 54% is what I mentioned to you in my mm -hmm. in the message I sent to you. You're right. He is a uh, he learned a lot from 2018 because uh, that surprised a bunch of people how close that that was. But one of the people who learned a lot from the 2018 election was Governor Abbott, who mm -hmm. immediately realized that the way you get at somebody like O'Rourke is you got to start painting him mm -hmm. very early. 
And, uh, you know, Abbott was running ads right after the primary. He was running ads. I mean, he was flooding the TV with ads, uh, sort of Beto O'Rourke greatest hits, you know, all these great lines. And it worked. uh, It was very effective. Plus, he had a lot of money to do it. But let me bring up another issue about the Senate. And I know we're still a year uh, in advance. But at the moment, the the Senate is 51-49 Democrat. And, you know, looking at potential possibilities, the Democrats, by 10 o'clock election night, the Democrats could be down in West Virginia, in Ohio, and in Montana, which means instead of 51, they could be at 48. So it seems to me that if the Democrats go crazy in Texas like they did in 2018 and blow all this money down here, that money would be a lot better spent in other Mm -hmm. places, especially Mm -hmm. defending that or even Florida uh, defending that because that has a Senate seat, I believe, also coming up. So, you know, the last time I I thought the Democrats spend way too much money on Texas. Yeah, 80 million, I think. Yeah, and in fact, there were critics who were saying that back then. There were many people saying to the Democrats back in 2018, hey, you know, you're blowing your money. You're blowing your money. Uh, They lost some seats that year, Missouri, uh, Indiana, Florida, that were fairly close. And maybe had they spent the money on those three, they would have had better results. Yeah, each party take special delight in winning a state they're not supposed to win that's viewed as one of the linchpins of the other party. And that's what I think in part is going on in Texas. The Democrats can taste it, though only once have they even come close, which was, again, the O'Rourke race against Cruz. Um, And, you know, people have been saying for years as the state changes, higher Hispanic percentage, lower white percentage, more people moving in from blue states, that uh, voting patterns will change. And so far, it doesn't look like the emigres to Texas are shifting the state's mix between Republicans and Democrats. Maybe in Arizona a little bit, where they're getting a ton of Californians. Uh, Florida certainly doesn't look like that's happened, that the blue state people have voted blue. It's people who want to flee blue states (laughs) who are going to Florida. But the, uh, the states you mentioned, uh, even Manchin, I think, understands at this point it would be difficult for him to win re-election. And if he's not running, it won't even be close. I mean, the Republicans will win that Senate seat in a walk away. Uh, Montana is always tough. Uh, tester and presidential election years are better for Republicans in a state like Montana. But Tester has managed to survive. And until he's beat, he's not beat. Um, Ohio is a similar situation. The only surviving statewide Democrat is Sherrod Brown, who doesn't sound very much different than J.D. Vance. I mean, they talk some of the same populist message. So that's not a shoo-in either. Uh, There's a chance. Um, But the Republicans obviously have more opportunities this time than Democrats do. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. By the way, I I, I saw Carl Rove uh, a few days ago saying that he had seen some numbers or had done some analysis of the numbers of the people who are moving to Texas. Hmm. And in the last election, uh, this was on Fox News. He was being interviewed. I don't know if this is part of those articles that he writes at the Wall Street Journal, but I saw an interview on TV where mm-hmm. he said that uh, in the numbers that he has seen of people moving to Texas, that they tend to favor the GOP, that, for example, they voted for Abbott in huge numbers uh, the last time around. So, again, I have not actually seen those numbers. I'm just referencing right. what right. Carl wrote. But 
But the numbers make sense to me because if you look at where these people are moving to, there's 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 something phenomenal happening in Texas, and I'm not sure a lot of people are picking up on this. Uh, if you look, for example, at North Texas, which would include Dallas and all the suburbs, or well, they're not really suburbs; they're cities. Uh, very little growth in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Uh, when every time you look in the newspaper and you see that a new business has moved to North Texas, they're not moving to Dallas. Right. They're moving to Plano and these other communities to the north. Uh, communities that are booming, right. but communities that are Republican communities. Right. And the same thing is happening in Houston. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the big growth is coming outside of Houston. So, yes, Dallas is more blue. Houston is more blue. San Antonio is more blue. And El Paso is more blue. And I'm not even going to mention Austin. <laughs> I mean, that's that's beyond repair, as they say. <laughs> but But what I'm saying is those communities become more blue but the areas around become more red. Don't, don't necessarily. I once cracked a joke that you could drive from Dallas to El Paso and you have a better chance of running into a dinosaur than a Democrat. <laughs> okay, because it's just reality in the in the rural areas. But anyway, well, Richard, I want to thank you so much. Uh, it was absolutely great touching base with you. I hope we do it again. Maybe if we do it in October, the Rangers and the Cubs will be in the World Series. Uh, it's a long shot, but I'll go yeah. for it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm an optimist. As they I, say. I don't know if you remember the story, but in 2003, when the Red Sox looked like they were on their way to the World Series and the Cubs looked like they were on their way to the World Series, and George Will in the Washington Post said, if this is to occur, we can then provide you a date for the next thermonuclear war. <laughs> <It'll be laughs> A day before either of these teams yeah. could clinch a World Series. Well, I would say today it's a long shot, uh, Rangers, Cubs, but you never know. You yeah. never know. Pro- but, you know, the National they're gonna, the National League, you have to get through the Braves. Right. And I don't know how you do that. Yeah. And in the American League, uh, I think there's probably easier path to the World Series for the Rangers. But in the National League, if the Cubs can beat the Braves, they de- deserve to be the world yeah. champs. Because the Phillies that, did it last year, and they were 15, 20 games behind. I know. I know. Season. Well, that's what they see. They killed. They they came up with all this postseason opportunities, and that's what made possible Philadelphia last year. Philadelphia sure. was literally out of contention a week that's to true. go, right. and somehow they, they got in. Well, Richard, thank you so much. You have a wonderful day. You too, Sylvia. And thank thank you. you for your time. We'll do it. Uh, we will do it. Uh, we will do it again. Our good friend, uh, Richard Baer, uh, senior political correspondent with The American Thinker. And, of course, The American Thinker. I have a, uh, a few things that I post over there once in a while. So we always enjoy your comments over there as well. And our thanks to, to Richard for joining us in this very interesting uh, conversation about Trump and politics and everything else going on. Thank you for listening. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas. <laughs>